Stu did a good job, didn't he? Of course, having Laura up there beside him sure helped a little bit, didn't it? Gang, I'm glad that you're here this morning. I'm excited to be able to share God's truth with you. I want to invite you this morning to take your Bible. And I want you to turn with me to Romans chapter 1. Okay, Romans chapter 1. We'll be there in a little bit. Uh, For those of you that uh, may not grew up Southern Baptists, uh, but for those of you that have been here, you'll know that uh, we are about at the end of a church year. Southern Baptist, for some strange reason, ends in August, uh, maybe so we can skip Christmas presents or something. But Southern Baptists have always ended toward the end of summer and kick off the new church year in September. And it's kind of logical, I think, to do that. We uh, get to the end of the year and we know that uh, uh, the summer's about over. And school is about to start, and all the parents said, yeah, amen, school's about to start. Vacations are uh, about to get over as well. Uh, the, uh, the, the flock that has been straying for the summer will begin to come home to roost again. And so we begin the fall here in just a few weeks. Uh, I'll tell you, we've had a great summer. I just tell you that we've. I know you've been. Some of you've been gone. We've been noted. We've been checking you off the list. Uh, but I have to tell you, overall, uh, we've probably had the best summer uh, Indian Springs has ever had. I want to tell you, uh, thank you for that. Thank you for your faithfulness. Uh, financially, gang, we're ending this church year. Actually, our church ends in December. The church year ends at the end of August, and I just want you to know that we on staff have not felt the pressure of the summer months like we usually do. And so I want to commend you, first of all, for your faithfulness when you're here. Uh, we want to thank you for your faithful giving, because we've just not felt it, okay? But also, I want you to know how excited we are about what we believe God wants to do uh, beginning in just a few weeks. Uh, we're really excited. We, uh, I just think we're going to have a lot of opportunities to touch a lot of lives, gang. I believe we're gonna, God's going to give us a lot of opportunities to impact the kingdom of God. And we're gearing up for that. We're trying our best to figure out the best way to do that. Uh, you've heard us talk about the need of workers. We need those who will serve. Let me tell you, anytime you commit to serve, you're uh, committing to sacrifice, maybe even sorrow in some respects. Uh, but we're, we're excited about that, okay? I want you to know what my assignment from God is this morning to you. Don and I are going to be teaming up, okay? We're going to be working together over the next several weeks. Uh, and we're going to, in one respect, we're going to encourage you. We're going to say thank you. But we, we're going to encourage you to stay with it and to think about what God might want you to do over the course of several months. Second thing we want to do is challenge you. Uh, the church needs to be challenged. Let me just tell you, Don was giving me another statistic. You've heard me say and probably heard Don say that within a five-mile radius of our church, there's 52,000 people. Can you get your head around it? 52,000 people. Don told me just the other day that uh, you expand that circle out to eight miles. Uh, You know how many people are in that eight-mile circle? Over 100,000 people. Again, I'm, I'm not a statistician, but I would just imagine out of that 100,000 people, uh, most of them don't go to church. Most of them don't know the Lord Jesus, okay? 
And we have been commissioned by God. Uh, for some reason, many years ago, someone planted a building that would become Interstate 30 in Bryant, Arkansas, in Saline County. Somebody had some kind of vision to do that. And so God planted a group of people right here. And as we stand on their shoulders and continue, uh, we look around. There's more opportunity today than any other time in the history of our community to reach people for Christ. Today's the day. And so over the next few weeks, uh, we're going we're gonna to encourage you. Uh, I'm going to tell Don to step on your toes some, okay? And, uh, and, and we're just going to try to build a vision in you to match what's in us for what we believe God wants to do. Okay, now let me tell you what my assignment is this morning. My assignment is to talk to you about motivation, okay? Um, I want to spend a little time in Romans chapter 1 this morning talking to you about why Paul did what he did and why we should do what the very best we should do for God's glory. It's a wonderful passage of Scripture. It's called Paul's I Am's. We're going to look at three places where Paul says, I am, I am, and I am. And I, I'll just tell you up front, I, I struggled in the first service getting out what I wanted out, okay? Um, and I, I, I went to my Sunday school class uh, thinking about it. I got out of class a little early, and I think maybe, I think maybe the reason I struggled, and maybe we'll struggle a little bit here, is because one of the verses we're going to talk about, okay, is the verse that probably has impacted the church more than any other verse in all of the Bible, and that's a bold statement, okay? It certainly is the verse that impacted Martin Luther, changed Martin Luther's whole life. And if you know anything at all about church history, God used Martin Luther to lead the church out of the dark ages of Roman Catholicism into what historians now call the Great Reformation. And so I guess maybe I'm a little humbled that I actually would attempt to stand in God's pulpit in God, with God's Word and attempt to tackle that one verse. But nevertheless, that's my assignment to you today. Okay, We're, my, my goal is that that I can help as we end uh, to, to show you the driving force of Paul's life. Why this man, who knew all about Rome and knew how bad Rome was, uh, Rome would be uh, San Francisco, to, it's worse than San Francisco. Rome would be the, it's worse than Chicago. Rome would be the neighborhood of Osama bin Laden, okay? And yet we're going to find in our passage today, as bad as that is, Paul was actually looking forward to. He felt an obligation toward Rome, but he was eager for it. He was excited about it, and he was going to the seedbed of iniquity, I mean, if you wanted to draw the worst of the worst, okay, 
He said, I'm going and there's no fear in my no shame. What if God, what if God were to call you to the inner city of New York or the inner city of Chicago or the inner city of Little Rock, a place that you know is anti-God, full of paganism, and tells you, you go there, would you go? Would you be excited? Would you go with no fear? That's what Paul tells us in the passage you're going to read. Okay, would you stand in honor of God's Word? We're going to begin reading verse 14. And I'll just tell you up front, verse 17 kills my soul. I'm going to end with it if I can. Okay? Now pick up the I am's as I read. Verse 14, he says, First of all, I am under obligation both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So as for my part, I, and here's the second I am, I am eager to preach the gospel to you who also are in Rome. Why? For I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Anytime we don't speak up, when God gives us opportunity to speak up, we're shaming the gospel. Anytime we don't live the way we're supposed to live as blood-bought believers of Jesus Christ, we're shaming the gospel. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, Rome. Why? Because it is the power of God for salvation. For who? Everyone who believes. Jews and Greeks. That means the, all the world. And then verse 17. This is how he pulls it together. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written. But the righteous man shall live by faith. Father, I, 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 I love the passage. I think it should be somebody else up here expounding it today. Nevertheless, it's the assignment that you've given to me. And I pray, God, I'll do due diligence to it. I pray that as we talk about it and break it down a little bit, that, Father, your, your pleasure will be felt among us, that your Holy Spirit will do its, His anointing as required, and that God will realize how tough Rome was how blessed Paul was, and we should be the same. Give us illumination in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, gang, listen, take, keep your Bible open. I want to begin in verse 14 for a moment, and I want us to see Paul's burden, okay? Look at Paul's burden there. He says, I'm under obligation. If you have, you, one of your translations may have the word debt there, which is, I think it's actually a better term. The word debt or the word obligation is actually a word that Paul pulls from the financial world. Um, how many of you have ever had car fever? Okay. There's a, mostly guys, a few girls. There you go. There's a good double hand. I see that double hand over there, okay? Well, when you get car fever, you know what you try to do, don't you? You try to figure out why you should get the car. And you begin to justify in your mind and you... It takes a little while, guys, for your wife. They don't listen to the Holy Spirit like we do, right? 
And uh, eventually what happens is you finally say, it's time to buy. So you go to a dealer, and the dealer works with you and negotiates a little bit with you. And finally you say, that's it. And you agree to X number of dollars for X number of years. And then he pulls out a piece of paper, and you sign the paper, right? And immediately when you sign the paper, you know what happens to you? That word right there. You're under obligation. You're under debt. Now, here's what Paul is saying. He takes that word, a financial term, and he says, I'm under debt. And you might think he's talking about people here, Greeks, barbarians, wise. No. He says, I'm under a gospel debt. I'm under the debt of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. It motiv- it's the gospel that motivates me. I can't get away from it, you see. Now, gang, motivation is an interesting thing. We're all motivated in life in different ways for different things, aren't we? Now, it may be healthy or unhealthy. could be good or evil uh, for a paycheck. Some of you are going to get up in the morning, and you're going to go to a job, and you may be going to a job you really don't like, but you're going to go to it because you've got to pay bills, you've got to get a paycheck. There's something that drives it, it drives you nonetheless. Well, here we have Paul, the great persecutor of the church, who on that road to Damascus met the Lord Jesus Christ and everything in his world was changed because he was saved by sovereign grace. His motivation meter changed. No longer was life about Paul. Life became about the gospel of Jesus Christ. And with the gospel came people in grave danger and in deep need. Paul knew what it was like, what hell was like, and that people were going to go there. Paul knew what heaven was like, and the saved were going to go there. And it consumed him in such a way that everybody he came in contact with, and everybody he thought about, and every town he thought about, and especially in Rome, he couldn't get away from it. And it drove him to say, I'm under an incredible debt here. There's an obligation pressing in on me to take this good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ, into the very most wicked place in the known world, but I can't do anything about it. i got to do it. And beloved, I believe the fellowship of the saved must feel that same gospel debt. Heaven and hell is real. And those 52,000 people in a five-mile radius and those 100-plus thousand of people in an eight-mile radius are going to spend all of eternity in heaven. You're going to spend eternity in heaven or hell. God help us who call ourselves the fellowship of the redeemed. God help us who call ourselves the fellowship of the saved, the blood-covered saints of God. Help us to do our best. That 50 to 80,000 people, when they see our church and hear us talk and watch how we live, pay our bills, even pay our taxes, you know, God help them to see in us something worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ.
Number two, verse 15. We see not just his burden here, but in verse 15, this blows my mind, we see his boldness. Look at verse 15. For my part, I'm eager to preach the gospel to you in Rome. This burden he feels gives him an excitement for the gospel. The word, uh, the word eager that Paul uses is a word, it's kind of an interesting word. It gives us the English word thermos, okay? Um, it actually has a little preposition, so it's an emphatic form, epi, which is, uh, really puts emphasis on it. And so it's heavy thermos, if you'd allow me to say it that way. It's a word that it means so much heat that sometimes translators translates that word uh, a passion, but not just passion, a heated passion. So Paul is saying that in every part of me is passionate and ready to preach in Rome, the very center of paganism, the apex of anti-Godism. And here's Paul saying, I can't wait to get there. It's so consuming me. I'm so excited about it. I'm so looking forward to going into Osama bin Laden neighborhood to share Christ. You see, dear people, Paul got it. And when we get a clear understanding of the gospel of grace, that we're saved apart from any merit of our own, saved apart from any work of our own, saved apart from any effort of our own, saved apart from any, even any cooperation with God, or even guilt to get out of the bad deal. When we understand that we're saved simply because of the elective grace of God, that it was God's idea to do that, then all of your world changes. Paul was so bold and passionate in Rome. And I believe we can have the same passion in little old Saline County when no one's shooting at us, at least yet, right? One of the commentators that I read said this, in Jerusalem, the religious center, he was mobbed. At Athens, the intellectual center, he was mocked. But in Rome, the cultural center, the legislative center of the known world, he was martyred. And Paul says, I'm ready. I'm ready. Amazing statement, isn't it? Number three then, okay? His belief. Look at verse 16. I'm not, I'm not ashamed of the God. In other words, no fear. We see that in some of the athletic sayings today. You walk around with shirt, no fear. We ought to say, no fear, Jesus, you know? Or I fear Jesus. Maybe that'd be better still. I don't know, you know? But that's the kind of idea that's here, okay? He pulls his burden, his boldness together. He pulls his debt and his devotion together. He knew that because, first of all, revelation, God said it because of experience. He lived it, the gospel had God's power to convert something that was dead into something that is alive. No matter, listen, your neighbors that live down the street, those that you rub shoulders with, those that you work with, regardless of man's status, regardless of man's culture, regardless of man's influences in his life, skin of his color, personal philosophies, Paul knew that the gospel was more powerful. It could break down every stronghold around every man's wicked heart. And Paul believed it with his life. Again, listen to me for a moment, okay? 
Our nation's only hope is not in changing a president, okay? Our nation's only hope is not in changing Congress or the judicial system. I'm not saying they don't need to be changed, okay? I'm just saying our nation's only hope is not in changing that. Our nation's only hope is not in our military or economic prowess, okay? Our nation's only hope is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our nation's only hope is a spiritual issue, has a spiritual answer. And I want to submit to you, Indian Springs, as we gear up for the fall, that truth must be lived in your life. That truth must be proclaimed in your life. That truth must live in your house, must guide your kids' thinking, must influence the people that you influence, and the circles in which you live. Paul knew that the gospel was the only answer. And even in wicked Rome, Paul knew that it would happen. And if you continue to read through the New Testament, you find it did happen. People in Caesar's household, praetorian guard, circles of government, came to know Christ through the proclamation of the gospel, through the preaching and the teaching of the Apostle Paul. Paul knew that wicked Rome could even be shook with the gospel of grace. And dear people, we must have the same motivation. We must have that same conviction. Not just in our nation. God, help us in our nation. But the nation boils down to our communities, which boils down to our families which boils down to every single person in this room right here, right now. But it's the power of God, you understand. So therefore, it works. Now, let me try to close all this up, draw it together. I know some of you are thinking, 1130, this is going to be cool. I want to draw it together and give you the, the why of Paul, and then I, I want to close with a life, true life, application. Okay, I want you to look at verse 17. Okay, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. A cursory reading of this would make you think that Paul is talking about some virtue or some attribute of God. You, when you read it initially, here's what you're going to think. Paul's talking about a character of God that God is righteous. That's not what Paul's doing. Now, obviously, Paul believes that God is righteous, and throughout the New Testament, you find that God is righteous. Isn't that true? God is perfect in His righteousness. God is perfect in His holiness. God is perfect in His justice. But that's not what Paul is saying here. Okay? What Paul is saying, and he's stating a tremendous truth, he's not talking about who God is. He's talking about what God does here. This verse has movement to it. In fact, one translation says the righteousness from God. Paul's not stating a tremendous truth that God is perfectly holy, although He is. He's saying that when someone gets saved, when, when a believer repents and by faith believes in Christ, it is at that moment the righteousness that is from God is poured into, deposited into, imputed into that one who believes. You see, he's saying that, 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 that it's not what God is, 
but he's stating what God does. And listen, what God does is change a life. That's the reason he's so burdened. That's the reason he's so bold. And that's the reason he's so brave in in the face of the most wicked anti-God people in the known world. He knew that the gospel not only saves from sin, but the gospel pours in the very righteousness of God, you see. And this deposit of righteousness makes those declared righteous by faith live by faith. I, um, I was gone last week. Many of you probably knew that. Some of you probably could care less. Uh, but I was out last week, and, and I knew Don preached and did a great job, so I may be a little redundant because Don and I have been talking about some things before I left. And so uh, he may have ever brought that out. Uh, so this may be a little redundant. But, you know, so often when people come to us, they'll, they'll come and they'll say, you know, I, um, I'm just really struggling with my salvation. Uh, let, uh, Doug, let me pick on you, okay? Doug comes and he says, you know, Tom, I'm really having a hard time with my salvation. I really don't know whether I'm saved, okay? Well, generally, Doug, what, what we do, and you've done it to people, you go back in history, don't you? What you do is you try to take them back to a moment, and you try to say, okay, Doug, talk to me about your life. Did you ever go to church? Did you ever go to a preacher? Did you, know, did you talk to your mom? Was there ever a time? And what we try to do is locate a place. We may not know the exact moment or even the day. Some people get hung up on that, okay? Some people get hung with the fact they're walking out. I actually think someone say before they ever step out. I believe God's so sovereign. He's already regenerated your heart. All he does is kick you in the tail and get you down the aisle, Okay? But what we tend to do is we tend to go back to that moment. Okay, Doug, how old were you when you said that prayer kind of idea? The problem with that, gang, is I wasn't there. I really don't know. And Doug may have been so young, he may not understand it all. Now, there's nothing wrong with going back because you are saved in a moment of time when the grace of God convicts you and you repent and believe, okay? But let me tell you what I think we ought to be doing. Doug comes to me, okay? said, Tom, I, I really don't know that I'm saved. Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't go back, but I think maybe the first question ought to be, Doug, what's going on in your life today? Hey, Doug, I don't know what happened when you were 10 or 7 or 12, but Doug, let's talk about Doug now. Doug, is there anything in your heart today that burns you for God? Is there anything that melts your butter for God today? Doug, do you go to church? Do you pray? Not just when you're in a bind. I mean, do you pray? You know? Do you read his love letter at all? Do you have any kind of desire for the things of God? Do you have a desire that when people look at your life, Doug, they see something that is right, just, holy? See? This whole thing about Paul here is saying that the just shall live by faith. What he's saying is, the past is not as important to me as today is what is important to me. Are you tracking with me? Because this is where I felt like I lost the first service. So if you're tracking, say amen and help me out. If you're really lost, say, I'll talk to Don. Okay? This This is critical. Okay? Doug and I are talking about his life right now. That's what verse 17 is all about, okay? It's nothing done by any of us. 
It's something that's done to us. It's not something that I grab. It's something that's gifted me by the sovereign grace of God that so indwells me and so imputes His righteousness into me that I'm never the same. And it flavors everything in my life. Okay? It was verse 17 where Paul gives his great reason of motivation. Now let me give you a life illustration. It was verse 17 that changed Martin Luther. And Martin Luther was a man, there was others, but primarily he was the man that God used to bring the church into what is now called the Great Reformation. I don't have time to tell you all of Martin Luther's life. I'd forget it, most of it anyway. But Martin Luther was a genius. Okay? Kind of reminds me of Stu, not me. He was a genius. Uh, He grew up deciding that he was going to become a lawyer. Uh, His daddy didn't like that, but he had that kind of a mind. So he ended up on the legal road. If there's one thing a lawyer knows is there's laws. And if you break the laws, Tom, where are you, Tom? If you break the law, there's, there's consequences to breaking of the law, right? I mean, he knew that. He knew that in the system of civil government, someone makes the rules. And you keep the rules, you're okay. You break the rules, guess what? You suffer. Well, Martin Luther began, as God began that process in his life, Martin Luther began to realize, man, he was breaking God's law over and over and over again. And he was absolutely miserable about it. He couldn't get it away from it. And so he decided through some experiences of life, he decided to become a monk. So he became a monk. That didn't help. He decided to, to, to study and he did. That didn't help. He decided to be good and he did and that didn't help. He decided to, in a sense, beat his body. He abstained from things. He disciplined himself. He did penance. He did all those kind of things, trying to find some kind of favor with God. But none of that worked. He was miserable. It's told about Martin Luther that he was so law conscious, that he had broken the law so badly, that he would go into priests in confession. And he would sit for hours confessing his sin. And when he got through, he would leave and he would remember something he didn't confess and he'd go back again for hours. Finally, the priest said, don't come back. Come back when there's something to confess. See, Martin Luther was driven by the fact that someone had broken the law and when you break the law, there's always a consequence to it. And one day, he was reading verse 17. And there was a promise that was unlocked to him, that I pray to some of you, maybe unlock some of your performance-minded, effort-driven, good works, trying salvation. Paul, uh, Martin Luther realized that the righteous man shall live by faith because the righteousness of God is revealed from heaven. And all of a sudden, Martin Luther realized 
Paul wasn't talking about a virtue of God. Paul was talking about something God did and something God gave. And God in his sovereign grace unlocked him from the misery of religion, the misery of a false religion called Roman Catholicism. And through him, God sent a great reformation into the world, saved by grace alone, justified through faith alone, redeemed through Christ alone, according to the word of God alone. Why? For the glory of God alone. And that's the tenets of the great reformation upon which you and I today still stand. And the reason we can meet together and worship God and teach God and sing our songs together is because those men realized it wasn't anything from a pope or anything from a preacher or anything mandated by some kind of script. It was the ultimate grace of God alone. And it unlocked this man. And I pray that it'll unlock some of you today. He realized that what he thought was God's frown was really God's crown. He realized that what he had received was the smile of God and had nothing to do with his effort, had nothing to do with his works. It just had everything to do by grace. You see, the righteousness that is from God, from faith, is giving to all who believe, and by faith they live. And it changes your whole way of life. Father, I am humbled by the fact that in the fullness of your time, through the election of your grace, you save sinners and you declare them justified as saints. Not because of any work or performance, simply by receiving what you do, all of grace. For by grace, Father, are we saved through, your, through faith. And that none of ourselves, it's your gift to us, not of works, lest any man should boast. That truth ought to change our life. That truth ought to help us impact the 50 or the 100,000 people that zip by us on the highways, that crowd us in the hallways. Help us, Father, to be ready. Have no fear, not to be ashamed, to be eager to change someone's life with the only words that will ever change their eternity. Because, God, we're in debt as well. Through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, we're obligated to live for he who died and made us righteous. God, this morning in this place, with these dear people you've assembled, help us not to go back in history to a moment. Help us to ask ourselves, what's happening today? Is God alive today? Is there a hunger and a thirst today? Which is simply proof of what had happened years ago. Have your way. Be glorified today. In Jesus' name.